China? What are they even saying? China's AI research budget. How much is it spending, and why does it matter? Also, American immigration policy. How bad is it for AI research? To discuss, we have Zach Arnold, senior fellow at Georgetown CSET, and Ashwin Acharya, a researcher at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. So how, if at all, do transparency issues impact the Chinese research ecosystem? It's a really interesting question, whether it's in terms of transparency, whether it's in terms of bureaucratic efficiency, meritocracy, you see, especially around sort of some of the talent recruitment programs that have been getting a lot of attention, Thousand Talents and, and so forth. There's a notion, if you're less familiar with these programs, that they're having incredible success and bringing all these people back and there's seamless flow of attention, of information. There's a lot of complaints about how these talent programs work, the results they get, how, you know, for example, people who participate in these programs being simultaneously sort of over-resourced by Chinese governments trying to attract them. And at the same time, people participating in those programs and finding out they kind of run into sort of domestic networks of, of just favors and not being able to compete purely on merit. So I think it's an open question. China's research culture, how, merito- how meritocratic it is, how politically inflected it is, inflected it is. I think it's still kind of an open question how that's going to affect the development of the tech um, and the research community in China over the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. And to what extent are these, you know, meritocracy issues inhibiting research in the U.S. as well? I, th- I do think the U.S. system is, in, in research anyways, fairly meritocratic from what I've seen. Certainly, you know, from a seaside research perspective, the same questions that are hard to answer in China how much is this agency spending or that agency spending? How much of it can we say is meaningfully related to AI? These are really difficult questions to answer in the US too. You know, I think all large bureaucracies, you know, have have some trouble with with transparency, with, you know, framing their data in a way that's easy to parse. So I think there there are tricky research questions on all fronts, you know, not not just in China. So let's talk a little bit about CSET, the new kid on the Mass Avenue think tank block. What is it exactly? We are a basically a think tank, but we're based within the School of Foreign Service uh, at Georgetown University in D.C. We study the, the security implications of emerging tech. We launched last March for the first uh, two years or so. We're, we're going to be focusing exclusively on artificial intelligence. So we have a, a fairly narrow focus, at least for now. We also think we're kind of unique in DC because we have a very heavy data emphasis. So we have a team of data scientists, software engineering, we're investing heavily in acquiring and cleaning a lot of different data in multiple languages from a variety of sources. We also have in-house translation staff. Basically, we're we're trying to build the the resource base to be able to deliver really sort of nonpartisan, factually driven policy analysis in areas, you know, like AI, where there's a lot of interest, a lot of anxiety, maybe even hype. And, and we think facts yeah. can can really play a, you know, a valuable role. So what's the point of basic AI research anyways? People who follow R&D spending kind of make distinctions between basic research and applied research. And then toward the applied end, it gets split up into applied research and um, experimental development is a term you'll see. Basically, you can think of it a more theoretical versus more sort of solving problems in the real world. So 
Um, in the basic research bucket, we'd put more mathematical reasoning, thinking about you know new architectures or just high level approaches to to developing artificially intelligent systems. Basic research is also more associated a lot of the time with with kind of uh, risky bets, sort of moonshots, like exploring new fields of study that might not pan out, but if they do, it'd be really great and useful. When you're getting toward the applied end, you're thinking about, you know, taking a mathematical framework you've developed, for example, and implementing it in a particular code environment or further along toward development, integrating it into some actual product that you're going to test in the world or test on on real data in healthcare or security or whatever other, you know, domain you're interested in. So who exactly are these people doing basic research instead of, you know, making millions as an AI researcher in Facebook or, or Google? So I know a bunch of people who are in various stages of like the ML PhD pipeline. I guess my take would be there's like not that clear of a distinction between like sort of this like very pure basic research in, and like applied research in ML as there is in other areas in the sense that in something like chemistry, you can just be like, okay, look, let's work out the like theory of how thermodynamics works in general for like some abstract system. And that's miles and miles removed from building an engine or something. But in machine learning, a lot of the like more basic research papers are also papers that are saying, okay, here's like a new structure that we we think could be really useful for X task. And the way we demonstrate that we think it could be useful is by actually going out and building it, talking about how we built it and showing that it like meets this benchmark. So I think there is... In terms of the kind of person who does that kind of research ever, I think there's very little distinction between that person and the person who like goes out and like tweaks and builds some like cutting edge thing at a company lab. But that said, I think there's also not as much of a distinction between the sort of company applied research and like academic or government basic research in AI as you see elsewhere. Because again, if you look at a lot of the progress that's been made on the basic end, it's often some sort of collaboration between university labs and company labs where you have some of the luminaries of the field, like Yashua Bengio or Yan Kun, are both associated with universities, but also working at Facebook or Google. So I think there's a lot of like this basic research does get done in private labs as the sort mm-hmm. of short version there. Do these AI researchers have enough leverage in the labor market that they can straddle these worlds and make a lot of money without having to work on tweaking recommendation algorithms full time? Huh. I don't have enough of a sense to be very confident in this, but I think that's definitely part of it. My sense is that it feels very cool for some of these people. You can read interviews where they're talking about like, it just feels so sweet to like figure out some new thing and build it. And so they definitely, it's something that they feel like driven to do. And then like some of the people who are like really high up there have some clout to do it. But I think, you know, you can see lots of labs like Google Brain or DeepMind that are privately funded, but their primary purpose or a lot of what they're doing is this sort of more like theoretical, like how do we build some like better system that's not necessarily going to get monetized right away. Uh, kind of thing. And so I think some of these companies really do think there's just going to be long-term returns to investing in this stuff. Yeah. At the same time, I I mean, AI is very different from other technologies, especially security relevant technologies in that, you know, the the private sector is, is in the driver's seat from the fundamental level up to applications. But there are, when we think about, you know, the importance of government spending or government support for R&D. I do think there there are areas that all else equal you'd expect the public sector to, or the private sector to to underinvest in, you know, cuz there's no clear payoff or, you know, maybe they'll put in a little on the side but they're really focused on, you know, improving their 
advertising algorithm or something. You know, we we think a lot, as you said, for example, about like standards for AI safety, AI reliability, thinking about mm-hmm. how you develop an AI system that you can, you know, reliably integrate or, you know, even understand whether it's a good idea to, to integrate into, you know, some system that is relevant to national security. I think in those sorts of areas, the private sector is clearly you know, deeply involved in AI R&D. But in those sorts of areas with less of an obvious commercial nexus, we worry more um, that there's not going to be as much attention if you just leave it to the private sector. How much does it matter where in the world this sort of basic AI research gets produced? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think AI compared to other technologies, there's a huge amount of sort of flow of, you know, developments, new papers, open source frameworks, you know, across the world. So you have the same people in in any particular country, maybe using, you know, Google's TensorFlow or, or different sorts of open source frameworks. Most significant developments in the field, to the extent they're published, are published open access on, on platforms like Archive. So I think it is, you know, that there's there's more of a just diffusion with a lot of different aspects of AI than than in, in past sort of really fundamental technologies. So I think that that's true to a point. I think there there are other aspects of, of sort of the AI tech stack that do not diffuse as easily. So for example, most really advanced AI relies at some stage on really advanced hardware, semiconductors, the equipment that makes the equipment that makes semiconductors. And that equipment is and the expertise to make it and operate it is concentrated in in you know, a few countries. And if you look at China's push to invest in semiconductors right now, for example, you you know, there's there's a lot of anxiety about being dependent on fundamental advances in other countries that are going to enable the sorts of development of AI that, that we're seeing ongoing now. I think also, you know, when you when you get to certainly when you get to more applied frameworks or applying to particular Commercial use cases, security use cases, you know, the, those specific tools are, are maybe not diffusing in the same way as, as basic research. But I, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I mean, certainly in, in, in China, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the need to sort of build the basic research presence in China specifically. You see this, you know, in, you know, government funders talking about it, academics, you have, you know, Baidu, for example, developing its own competitor to TensorFlow, uh, Paddle Paddle, like a framework for for developing these machine learning tools. So they certainly seem to think it's really important. I, I would guess that, you know, when you when you have basic research and applied research in the same place, um, when you have people who really deeply understand the foundations um, of the tech, it's easier to build on top of them. And basic research is just really interesting, attracts a lot of people passionate about the technology, tends to support innovation ecosystems in that way, too. Looping back to your comment about like safety and ethics standards, Zach, I think like that's another case where if the underlying question to this is about why should we care about U.S. government investment, say, in AI, then I think thinking about it not just as a zero-sum game, but also as a, like, it's not just a zero-sum game. There's some positive-sum element as well. So it's not just about where uh, certain safety and reliability progress happens or AI ethics progress happens, but if it happens at all. Uh, And maybe it matters just to have more of that happen rather than less because these capabilities are 
advancing and getting used in more and more places. And so making sure they're reliable, making sure they're robust, and making sure we as a society have some sense of like what we're going to do about them or can set the standards internationally for how they're used seems potentially really valuable. All right. So let's get into your research paper. How much is the Chinese government spending on AI relative to the U.S.? I should preface this by saying that these are pretty provisional in the sense that we were looking at like overall a pretty large pool of funding, like all of Chinese government R&D, and then estimating it based on a couple of programs that we were able to get detailed data on. So this isn't like hard and fast. It's like a pretty broad range. Our best guess is that the overall range of Chinese government funding of AI R&D is in like the few billion dollars range. So pretty comparable to the US. Uh, the US total for fiscal year 2020 is about a billion dollars from civilian agencies and about $4 billion in DOD funding. In China, our best guess is that civilian funding is like in the roughly $1.7 to $5.7 billion range. This is for 2018, which is the last year we had data for. And military funding is a lot harder to get raw data on. Our guess comes from basically looking at uh, the funding that's reported by the Ministry of Finance and then taking all the funding that's not attributed to some specific civilian agency, which is what some previous researchers had done a couple of years ago to try and estimate military intelligence, R&D funding in China. That said, there's it's unclear how much of this pool is actually R&D, how much of it is actually military intelligence. Um, but as an upper bound, if you take that total pool of like all the funding that's not attributed to any particular civilian agency and assume that 10% of it, which is sort of our upper bound for what portion of R&D funding went towards AI, 10% of this military funding went towards AI. If you assume that, then you get about $2.7 billion in military AI R&D funding for 2018. So overall, that's like, so overall, that's about $8 billion, comparable to the US $5 billion. Is there any good way to think about how much bang for your buck each country is getting on these expenditures? That's a really good question. We, we, don't, have, we don't have great data there. I think, again, you know, in the US, when people are talking about, you know, China's efforts in, in AI innovation or any other AI innovation or any other field of study, people tend to go to the extremes. Either it's, you know, China's a juggernaut, like they're really, you know, overtaking us, or it's China's system is really messed up, like they're wasting all their money, like none of this is going to get anywhere. So obviously, the truth is in the middle. There, there's very, very serious work, definitely world-class work in AI happening in China. I don't think um, anyone is is questioning that at this point. So there, and there's not really evidence as far as we can tell for, you know, the assumption that Chinese institutions are, are you know, less creative and thinking of ways to apply AI or extend the tools. It is true that, you know, China does seem to be spending significantly less on basic research than the US. And to the extent, you know, basic research is kind of a source for sustained development over the long term, that's an issue. So it's hard to say overall, you know, what what the bang for the buck is, but but clearly there, there's a very serious work going on at a large scale in China, and we should expect to see results from that mm-hmm. and already have. If you look at our upper bound estimate also, a lot of that is coming from like very applied research projects that like mention they might have some connection to like smart technologies, but quite plausibly, a lot of that is like sort of nominally AI, but not really AI in the sense that we think about it where it's like some like really advanced machine learning system. So it's quite possible that like in terms of bank for the buck, uh, you have like some portion of this funding is going towards like like stuff that's comparable to what we think of as AI when we talk about AI in the US, um, but a much smaller portion or, or a significant portion is going towards stuff that's a lot less like that. 
So one of the things I've been particularly impressed by in the CSET research I've read is the footnoting. So what are the two favorite footnotes you guys have from this paper? My favorite is footnote number 72. So that links to two articles discussing some of the problems with China's distributed research funding programs. Actually, this thing that we just mentioned, or that you just mentioned, Jordan, where you can have sort of the higher ups who are like, yeah, we want like national competitiveness, maybe also like we want to seem impressive to Uncle Xi. And then the sort of lower downs who mostly want to impress the higher ups. And the, there's like these vast like layers of bureaucracy in between the people who are looking for competitiveness and the people who are actually like implementing these programs. So one of these articles is about the guidance fund program, which I think is like a pretty fascinating look into sort of this like the like inefficiencies, but also the scale of this like of these like funding programs. But the one that I really like uh, is there's this report that talks about all these local programs that are done to try and foster AI in like all these random cities and provinces in China, including tons of places that like don't really seem like the the place to like try and create a new Silicon Valley. And in particular, one thing I thought was really interesting was Hangzhou apparently tries to lure highly skilled workers with subsidies, for example, for auctions of highly contested car license plates. And so I looked this up and I'm, I'm sure you know this, but I guess to prevent too much pollution and maybe congestion on the roads, uh, there's a whole system of like auctioning off license plates in China. Uh, and this is just like a really interesting thing because like once you step outside the scope of R&D funding, which we, you know, were very careful to, to not do in, the, in this report, things get super complicated because like, how do you even evaluate the value of that? Like, sure, people are willing to spend a huge amount for this. But like, does that mean that like every time you like allow an AI researcher to have a car license plate, you're like paying them like many thousands of dollars and that's like adding to the value of China's AI industry? It doesn't really seem like that's correct. And I think like, once you start looking at this stuff, you're like, wow, actually, it's like <laughs> this whole national competitiveness thing is like really difficult to think about once you start looking at all these incentives. So I, I like footnote two. Um, foot, footnote two, you know, you just uh, a perk for listeners of the podcast. So footnote two actually is is the the origin of this whole paper, I think, which is that there, there are like some pretty wild numbers floating around, uh, especially in DC, about how much people think China's government is spending on AI R&D. We, we were hearing the number $70 billion a year a lot, and we had like really weren't sure where it was coming from. We traced it back to a speech by, by an Air Force general that wasn't actually about R&D at all or, or really even public spending, but sort of mentioned $70 billion as a very loose estimate um, of, you know, the scale of AI activity in China, you know, in, in the near future. And this kind of got put into this game of telephone where, you know, it got conflated with R&D, it got conflated with all these different, more specific things that, that if you're not careful, give people a really confused, I mean, we don't think plausible, but, but certainly, you know, confused sense of, of the scale of the challenge or the scale of what's really going on. So I, ju- I just like that because we we are able, and you'll you'll see in the footnote, we can kind of trace you know where it started and then where it starts popping up and how it kind of warps over time. That's kind of the sort of discussion that CSET is really focused on, like areas where if we can develop some facts and explain them clearly, we can we can kind of interrupt that sort of thing. That was the hope with this anyway. So now on to talent flows. How important is the H-1B visa for the U.S. AI talent pool? Yeah, so H-1Bs are temporary employment visas for um, skilled foreign-born workers in the U.S., which in practice mostly means technical workers, workers in computing fields. It's one of, you know, it gets... 
ice skaters. Yeah, so there there's a bunch of these sort of spin-off and ancillary statuses related to H1B that I think have basically been cooked up in in drug deals over the years and decades. So you you get, you know, all over immigration law in the US, you get weird exemptions for, you know, ice skaters and fashion models. I think the nice thing about ice skating is that, you know, people aren't I guess people might worry you're you know opening the door to, you know, other kinds of performing artists, but but yeah, I don't know if that was like Disney on ice or, or something like that. The issue with the H-1B program is is that it's capped numerically. The caps haven't moved in, in a couple decades at this point. So there's a lottery every year to allocate these 85,000 H-1B visas. The demand is is much higher than that. It's in the hundreds of thousands a year. So you get a significant population of people, a lot of whom, you know, might be studying in the U.S. already or, you know, have job offers lined up at, at employers in the U.S. basically and don't win the lottery and are just kind of, you know, forced to either muddle along in some other sort of temporary status or, or you know, leave the U.S. And what about OPT, which has gotten more controversial as of late? So OPT is another program that actually it gets less attention than H-1B visas, which have been pretty controversial. And there's been a lot of news coverage in the last several years. OPT is like basically an extension of your student visa. So for students who are in STEM programs, you don't have to get a new visa after you graduate if you have a job that's in STEM, um, and you can work in the U.S. for up to three years. And so that's obviously useful in several different directions. You know, you can work, you can gain experience, your employer can, you know, see if they want to keep you on long term. It's also a very important bridge into these programs like H-1B that are lotteried. So, you know, if you're on OPT, you have three years, you can do the lottery three times, maybe that'll help. We focus a lot on OPT because U.S. schools are, you know, the a lot of the leading universities in AI are in the U.S. They're producing a ton of really good students, most of whom want to stay in the U.S. When they get a chance to stay in the U.S., they do. And so it's it's kind of a, a part of this pipeline that we think is, is really important to preserve. So does it really matter if this research is done in the U.S. or, say, Toronto from a U.S.-China national competitiveness perspective? That's a really good question. I think Toronto, you know, Canada and the U.S. are friends. If talent's going to Toronto, like that in itself, the effect might be kind of limited, but I think the, those sorts of outflows are really good indicators that systemically things are, are not going right here in the U.S. And we can expect that to come up. I think if, if people are being driven to some extent out of the U.S. to somewhere like Toronto or Berlin, I think a significant portion, if, you, if you're really worried about people going back to China, for example, a significant portion are also going to be going back to China. But yeah, the movement of talent is an indicator of how healthy the U.S. AI ecosystem is as a whole. And so it's to the extent we see those trends picking up, which we do, immigration numbers in, in Canada, for example, are, are way up, you know, that, that that's not a good sign and not, and not just for the location of talent. I do think it also matters for, for the development of the technology. There, there are tech hubs emerging, but a lot of the really important sort of innovation ecosystems are still in the U.S. around the Bay Area and Boston and Seattle and so forth. And there are real returns to scale productive researchers to become be able to come and do work in those places. So I, I do think if immigration policy is an impediment to that, we're going to see slower development in the tech as a whole, just inevitably. And lastly, on the Trump administration's articulation of AI principles. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a, a quickly moving space. I've seen some pushback, which I think is is kind of warranted that these are sort of very vague criteria. You know, I think they're meant as sort of a high level framework for then agencies to to use to set their own priorities. We've seen kind of like a stirring um, in D.C. even over the last year with the government and with federal agencies trying to think about even at a very high level what a what a regulatory framework for for AI looks like. So we've at, at CSET, for example, we've we're uh, really into AI standards developments, thinking about metrics and benchmarks and how can we tell if a system is reliable or safe. And we've seen a lot more work in the last several months from agencies like. Thanks so much for being a part of trying to talk. NIST, the Federal Standards Agency, to to develop priorities for this field. We're going to see it in other agencies too. I think there's definitely a push from the top to to start building foundations. This is definitely a very general first step. And in some corners of the federal government, things are moving much, much faster than that, getting much more specific things, you know, proposals around things like export controls. Um, in a lot of other areas, you know, things are things are just starting to stir. So watch the space. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Oh, 
是为了让你看不惯。骗人的小把戏，我不相信撒浪。不是就是我的方式，就是不屑一顾。放肆的在里面摩擦你的假想呗。我才不想说破你的 tricky trick。有个 bitch， 她想在我耳边说句撒浪。可惜 I got bad baby cash money， 不屑一顾。Bounce to the more， 不听你假想呗。我才没有功夫戳破你的 tricky。Tricky tree like trash. Tricky 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 tricky tricky. 